following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel.
Lord Jesus, as I speak your word, quicken it in our hearts. Awaken us to consciousness. Come and by the power of your blood accomplish all that you desire in us and for us. And we will praise you. For we know we cannot do it in our power. We have tried many times and failed many times, every time. So Lord, quicken this word now. In the name of Jesus, amen. There's a time in every man's life and every woman's life when we finally have to stop and say, what is the truth about my life? It takes courage to face our own hearts, to see the fevers that have burned within us for financial gain or for relationship gain or for some kind of gain that our hungry heart desires. To finally stop and say, okay, what's the truth? It takes great courage. I preach this today to you, believing that every one of you in this house is here because you have great courage. You will need it today. He was the most powerful man the world has ever known. The prophecy was that there would be a head of gold, then there would be silver, loins of brass, legs of iron, and finally feet of clay and iron mixed that would not cling together. And then a stone would be cut out without a man's hand, and that stone would come and strike that great image of a man on the feet. It would crush it, it would grind it to pieces, the wind would blow all of those kingdoms away, and that stone would grow into the great kingdom of God, known as the church. The head of gold was in place. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. And God said, I'll have you, Nebuchadnezzar. And the war was on. If you will today face the truth with me, you will admit that the war has been on for your heart for some time. For some of you, the war is still on. And the outcome is uncertain from a human perspective. But I tell you today, the outcome is not unknown from the heavenly perspective. He will have you. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem at the command of God. I expect when we arrive in heaven, one of those who will be greeting us will be Nebuchadnezzar. He is one of the greatest of all of Scripture because he fell the furthest and was rescued from the depths. And it was all public. Most of you have been able to do most of your falling and sinning and repenting in private. His was public. Everybody was talking about Nebuchadnezzar. How arrogant he was. If he said, 
this man is to die, this man was to die. If he said, I'll let you live, this man lived. He could give gifts to whomever he chose. He could lift up or cast down. He was God over his kingdom. And God said, I'm God over the universe. I'm bigger than you. Oh, does it take courage to admit that God is bigger than we are. And that those circumstances we find ourselves in are not the big deal we think they are. The big deal is called God. Kingdom of God. And now we have the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God and they're in direct conflict. That has been the war in your soul as well. The devil says, I own you. You owe me. And Jesus says, I bought you. I own you. And the battle for our soul is on. And we can play dumb. We can pretend there's no war. We can satiate ourselves with every good and evil thing. But at some point, we're going to have to gain the courage to stand before the throne of God and say, you are king. And I renounce the devil. I renounce the works of darkness. I renounce my own wicked nature. And I ask you, Jesus, to come in and rule over me and my mess. Any of you today have a mess? If I went in your closet, would it? We won't go there. Jesus specializes in cleaning up messes. And the fight is on. In the book of Daniel, in the fourth chapter, the king has a dream. Verse 9, then... The king says, Belteshazzar, that is Daniel, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the, in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it food for all. And under it the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. And in the vision I saw while lying in my bed, I looked And there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live like an animal among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a a man and let him be given the mind of an animal 
till seven years pass by for him. The decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and give them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. Do you understand? God is looking at your life today. And he's making decisions about what he has to do in your life to humble your heart sufficiently that he can have his way with you. Now, what's so terrifying, when I look back through the history of Scripture, you have Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels of God come. The verdict has not yet been finalized. The angels come, and in one fit of filthy passion, Sodom and Gomorrah gather against those angels to sexually abuse them. And that is the final straw that causes the judgment of God to fall upon Sodom and Gomorrah. You realize you could go to Sodom and Gomorrah today. It's called the Dead Sea. It's all ash. Archaeologists have actually dug up balls of sulfur that were on fire when they hit that city. God's judgment was finally made because of the action. Almost always in history, when God comes to judge a nation, they are given an opportunity and they make one final decision without understanding that that last decision marks God's judgment against them. The Supreme Court of the United States of America just made that final decision for God to judge America. When they voted to violate the most fundamental principle of God's kingdom, violating the love that exists between God and his people to destroy the family unit in America. They crossed that boundary with God. Judgment has been declared on America and it cannot be turned back. The judgment will fall on America. America will be burned. It will be destroyed. And our task now is to save as many as possible for the kingdom of God because there are many, many people in America that God has great love and compassion for. I'm not saying that judgment has been pronounced over all the people of America, for it has not been. It has been pronounced on the government of America. It's been pronounced on the culture of America. And the call of God in our hearts today is come out from them and be separate. For the judgment has been passed. Makes my heart shudder. Every day I go in the radio, I have no idea who's listening. I have no idea who's listening around the world. But I know we're coming to the very end 
and the judgment and the mercy of God has to be proclaimed. We are in the last hour. But now, just even as I have spoken this to you about a nation, the same is true with an individual's life. God's word comes to an individual. It comes to an individual. It keeps coming to an individual. Finally, that person will cross over that boundary line. And finally, God's judgment will be spoken over that life. And it's over for that person. God is abundant in grace and mercy and kindness and love. He is patient. He is long-suffering. But we need to face the truth honestly and understand that there is a final act of defiance against the Most High. And when that act of defiance is finally put forth, we don't know what the final act of defiance is. Nebuchadnezzar didn't know what the final act of defiance would be. He's been warned. He brings Daniel. Daniel says, oh, I'm terrified. None of his other wise men would dare begin to interpret what what I'm going to share with you in just a minute. They were terrified of Nebuchadnezzar. If you made him mad, he could kill you and nobody could question him. He was all-powerful. Now comes Daniel, verse 19. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Don't don't let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Oh, if he only knew. It was alarming. You, O king, are that tree. You've become great and strong. Verse 22, Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. I have to ask you, is there anything in your life today that would cause God to say, all right, you knew better. You've defied the holy one. Now judgment is going to be pronounced. And in God's grace and mercy, no judgment took place. It was a full year before judgment took place. Always God sends a message. He loves us. He sends the message. He says, will you listen to my messenger? Will you turn from your wicked ways? Remember, it said God has a man's ways and his life in his hands. We all have ways, you know, when you go home this afternoon. Your ways will be evident quickly. It's what you usually do. It's how you keep yourself stable. He knows the drugs of choice, whether it be entertainment or working. Both can be drugs. He knows where we turn when our heart is sorrowful. He understands our personalities. Remember, he made us. In God's great compassion, he should have just said, okay, cut Nebuchadnezzar down now. But no, no. The warning came. A year later, the judgment comes. Daniel tries to tell him, renounce your sins, king, by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that your prosperity will continue 
But 12 months later, he's walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon with his beautiful hanging gardens. And he's saying to himself, is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? See, he doesn't claim just his palace. He claims the whole city is his palace. And he's built it all for his own glory. And now he's gloating over his power and his authority and what he's accomplished. And that's the final sin. He goes crazy. In that culture, when a man would go crazy, they would consider him possessed by the gods and no one would harm him. He is driven out into the fields, however. He takes all of his clothes off. He's like an animal. His hair grows long and filthy. Fingernails like claws. Eating the grass of the field like a cow for seven years. You think you're stubborn? This was a stubborn man. Seven years stripped. Inhuman. An animal. How would you feel right now if you tried to whisper to your sweetheart and all that would come out is the oink of a pig or the cackle of a chicken? What would you think if you suddenly saw feathers begin to sprout out of our brother? Feathers coming up his neck. Something red popping out of his head. What would you all think? That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He couldn't speak. I don't know if he sounded like a cow, but he couldn't speak. Imagine the mooing of Nebuchadnezzar as he's out in the fields. Amazing. What a picture of the foolish pride of the human heart. And we don't know at what point God will say, okay, You've acted like a pig for so many years, you're going to oink like one for the next seven years. And it is not unjust for God to say, you enjoy the pig trough, go ahead and just be a pig for seven years. That's mercy. Where God finally says, okay, face the truth of who you are. What would you look like today if suddenly you looked like your soul looks? What if everyone could look at you And suddenly you look like what you really are on the inside. Would you be a glorious, heavenly being? Or would you be a pig? It's fascinating to me that Nebuchadnezzar, whom I do not believe had to spend seven years. Seven is a symbol of perfection. He had to live until... He would do the only thing that could bring his deliverance. The scriptures say he began to raise his head and look up to the heavens. That's why he was there, because he would not raise his head and look up to the God of heaven. And as he lifted his head and he looked up, his sanity was restored. And suddenly... 
he could see with a sound mind his hooves. Now, some of you, me included, either have come or are coming to a place in your life where you are lifting your head up to Jesus and you see the ugliness, the piggishness of who you really have been. And now you get to choose to say, oh, look what I've been. And to begin to look down at yourself again and be transformed once more into that pig. Or you have an opportunity to continue lifting your head to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you. Transform me back into your image. Let me be like you, Jesus. You know what? I don't ever want to go back to being a pig. I lift my head to Jesus. And I trust him to make of me his own image. So that when he looks at me, he sees himself. I don't want Jesus to look at me and see a pig. I want him to look at me and see a person who looks like he looks. Because I allowed my heart to be humbled. And I allowed him to come in and do the work in my soul. And transform me into his likeness. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, you're either filled with a demon spirit or you're filled with the spirit of the living God. And the only way you can be delivered is to continually look up to Jesus. And don't ever stop looking at him. Don't look at yourself for one moment to say, wow, I've become pretty good here. Are you kidding me? That's the journey back to the pig trough. Jesus gets all the glory. Jesus understands. He's the one who rescued us. Now Nebuchadnezzar fades from the picture. Daniel is now an old man. Probably somewhere close to 80 years of age. His son, Belshazzar, takes over the kingdom. And this was a a young, spoiled, wicked brat. And he loves to party. So he holds a party with a thousand of his special friends. And just to show he does not have to submit himself to the God of heaven, he brings in the temple of Jerusalem's golden mugs and they drink from them and they worship the God of excess, the God of gold and silver. They proclaim their loyalty to the pig. And as the party is beginning to really crank up, the music and the dancing is loud suddenly there is an unwanted interruption in the party. On one large plastered wall appears just a giant hand that begins to write in living fire on that wall. 
meanie, meanie, tickle, you farsen. The king is terrified. He is so terrified, the scriptures say, he even had his loins loosen, which is a polite way of saying he peed his pants. He was terrified. He'd never seen anything like this. He immediately called for the enchanters and the astrologers and the diviners and the magicians and says, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be clothed with purple, will have a gold chain hanging around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Probably because Nebuchadnezzar was an old man and he was number one, and the sitting king was number two. And this man, whoever could interpret this, would be number three. Remember, I told you, when you finally cross over that line that is invisible to you, but in God's judgment, he has that line. It's one step further, and the judgment is pronounced. And this time, there is no warning, because... He's watched his father, Nebuchadnezzar. He has had ample witness and testimony, and he has utterly rebelled against it. He has ignored it. He has refused the word of God through his father. I suspect he scorned his father as weak. But now when he is face to face with the mighty hand of God, he's terrified. The enchanters look at it. They are afraid to try to interpret it. It is a damning message. Already the Medes and the Persians have been at work. They have been diverting the river that flows through under the gates in this mighty city. Even as this party is going full steam, they are denying the reality that the crash is coming. Reminds me of America. Chapter 5, verse 22. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you. You and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praise the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. You cannot see or hear or understand. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and your ways. Therefore, he has sent the hand that wrote the inscription. He's telling Daniel, look, if you'll just tell me what this means, I'll give you a a beautiful robe of purple, royalty. I'll include you in the royal family. You can be my brother. I'm going to give you gold. I'll give you all your heart desires. And Daniel says, you can keep all of your rewards, king, for yourself. I don't want them. We must come to a place in our lives where we say to the world, I don't want your rewards, world. A dear brother who's been doing everything he could to get ahead financially, building his business, successfully building out his franchise. He said to me, when I became a Christian, 
everything changed for me. And now, I still want to make a lot of money. And I'm going to become very wealthy. And it's all for the kingdom of God. Pastor, I want to see the National Prayer Chapel on FM radio. And I plan on writing that check. Amazing. What a change of direction. What a change of heart. I've had four Christian business people so far this year come to me and say, Pastor, I'm going to give the first $1 million. Now, will they? I don't know. But I know God is going to give this nation a wake-up call. I know he's going to speak in his mercy to the people of this nation to call them to righteousness. How is he going to do that? I don't know. But I love when a man or woman says, I'm going to give everything I have for the kingdom of God. I'm no longer interested in building my kingdom. I'm interested in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm on my way to heaven. That's the cry of my heart. Now that I get excited about. I get excited about a little lady who every month sends $20 out of her retirement. She's 87 years old. She gets a little Social Security every month. She sends $20 every month with a sweet note to me saying, young man, (laughs) preach the gospel. I love it. Young man, preach the gospel. And Pastor Ray, I go in my prayer closet and I weep because I can't send more. I just got that note this week from her. I decided this week, she lives in Bowie. I'm going to visit her. I want to meet this elderly person who calls me young man. This is the meaning of the words. Meanie, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end, but let me give you the specific meaning of the Hebrew word. It means numbered or measured. It means when you measure a cloth and you cut it off. You want 50 inches of cloth, you measure it out, foot by foot, inch by inch. You get to 50, you cut it off. The first word this hand wrote is, the cloth of your life has been measured. And I've decided to cut you off. Finished. Death. Those are the specific meanings of this word that Daniel interprets as, God has numbered the days of your reign, and he has brought it to an end. Until we are willing to recognize that our life must be numbered and measured and that our life will come to an end. And that end is going to be either in hell or heaven. But it will be cut off. 
We will not always dwell in this body of flesh. We're going to be given in heaven a glorious new body. The same kind of body that Jesus is now in. We shall see him and we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. He is glorious. And we will reflect his glory. We must face the truth. That life is not going to continue as you now experience it. You are on a journey either into utter darkness or into the light of Jesus. It will not always go on. The second word. Daniel interprets as you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Literally, the word means to be weighed and found to be a light weight. To be put on the scales and you're so light, you don't even weigh the scale down. You have no weight. I've shared before the story of C.S. Lewis, of the, of the people in hell who are asked if they would like to go to heaven, and they say, yes, we want to go to heaven. We don't want to live in hell. So they all board the train bound for heaven. They get to heaven, step out of the train from hell into heaven. And they suddenly notice that the sun shines through them. They don't cast a shadow. They are so weightless. They are so thin. They don't even cast a shadow in heaven. And then they begin to try to walk. And C.S. Lewis says that the grass pierces their feet and hurts when they walk on it. Because they don't have enough weight to even press the grass down. They make their way painfully to a stream of glorious water. And a droplet of water splashes on one of them. And it causes a great bruising on the arm. They find they have no weight. And they say, let me go back to hell. Because in hell they have weight. Is there any weight of righteousness in your life? I can tell you, the people who end up in hell do not want to be in heaven because there they have no weight. They are only weighed down by their lusts, by their selfishness, by their wicked ways. So when they get to hell, they are right at home. I don't want God to put me on the scales of justice and find that I have no weight. I want Jesus on those scales with me. I want those scales to hit the bottom. He says to this wicked man, you've been weighed and found wanting. You've been found lightweight. Therefore, the judgment of God is proclaimed against you. There is one last word. Farsen. It means your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The literal meaning of the word is divided and sent to hell. Divided from righteousness where there's no longer any opportunity to be righteous. Do you understand? To be innocent is the highest ideal of the human heart, and that innocence is found in Jesus. 
Jesus is the innocent one. And we are made innocent by the blood of Jesus. As we turn from darkness and we are one step from heaven. Right now, today, America has been judged. And America will be destroyed. But those of us who've been called by the Spirit, who have begun to respond, need to understand the position we stand in. We are yet in that probationary period. One step into the darkness can take us into the judgment of God on this nation. One step forward into the kingdom of God can bring us to heaven. We are right at the cusp. We are on the knife edge of eternity. And we have absolute assurance that we are loved by God, that we are treasured by Him, that He laid His life down for us. And never again are we going to live life as normal, philandering Americans. It's done. It's time to go to heaven. Is there anything in your life today that holds you to the darkness of this world? If there is, it's time to let it go. That decision must be made as you honestly look at reality, at truth. It's not an emotional decision. It's a decision that must must be made in cold blood. When couples come to me and they're in the midst of a fight, there's nothing I can do except try to pour some water on the some oil on the water and try to get the fight settled down. Because until the fight is over and things are quiet again, you can't talk reasonably or rationally with them. But once things are calm, now, cold blood, do you love this person? Yes. Do you want to spend the rest of your life with them? Yes. All right, we need some surgery done in your heart. You're going to have to give up being selfish and self-centered, and you're going to have to stop being impatient. Now let's talk about how to do that. Now we get to the guts of what it's going to take for you two to stop killing each other. And that's why we begin to say, okay, you understand, when you speak to her, you're not speaking to her, you're speaking to Jesus. And when she speaks to you, she's not speaking to you. She's speaking to Jesus. And Jesus will tell each of you what he wants to know, what you want to know about what the other person has said. Is Jesus the center of your heart and your life? See, the devil can't say anything to me anymore without going through Jesus. He's got to go through Jesus. You don't want the devil to say anything to you except through Jesus. Now, it goes the other way. You sit down and watch something violent and wicked. Because you have an open connection with Jesus, that feeds right into the heart of Jesus. And now he's going to have to make a judgment about you. Because he's not going to let you be in him and in sin. So you know what the answer is? He begins to cut you off. And you begin to drift further and further toward the pig life of Nebuchadnezzar. I don't want you to do that. Let me read this. Second, First Peter, the fourth chapter. Let's just read this straight word to our hearts. 
Everything that I've said to you today is now going to be boiled down in a few verses of 1 Peter, the fourth chapter. And I have to tell you, I used to say to my dad, Dad, do you have any scripture you'd recommend I read? We'd be talking on the telephone. I was in college, and I'd say, Dad, do you have anything I ought to read today? He'd say, yes, 1 Peter. Next time, I'd say, do you have anything? Yeah, 2 Peter. Anything I ought to read today, Dad? Yes, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. 1 Peter, 2 Peter. And when I'd finally say, Dad, come on. You know I've read this. Now, what do you want me to read? 1 John. That's all he would tell me to read. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. You know, I love to see, go in a grocery store somewhere, and I see a man or a woman carrying a forty-five in open carry. And I say, good for you. We'll have a civil society if everyone was wearing a forty-five. You tend to respect somebody who has a firearm on their side. You don't want to get shot. Well, I'm telling you now how to be open carry with Jesus. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourself also with the same attitude. What's the attitude? I will suffer whatever I have to suffer to not go into my sin. I will not go back to the pig life. And this week when you're at work and you're being tempted, reach up to the back of your head and just feel and make sure no bristles of a pig are growing. Rub the top of your head and make sure you're not becoming the chicken. I mean, what if God did to us on the outside what we are on the inside? Arm yourself with the attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Has your sin caused you enough pain and enough anguish that you're finally willing to say, okay, I'm going to arm myself. I'm going to be an open carry Christian. I'm going to say no to sin. I'm going to say yes to Jesus. My sin has cost me so much. I tell you today, the thief of sin has stolen such joy and happiness from my heart. It has cost me relationships. It has cost me opportunity. It has cost me money. It has cost me opportunity for the gospel. What has your sin cost you? He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. I sometimes ask particularly young people who want to go out and get drunk and the next morning are vomiting and hung over. I love to ask them, how's it feel? Next time, why don't you think about the vomiting before you drink it? Next time, why don't you think about your actions and what it will cost you tomorrow morning? You hook up with somebody, you're sexually unclean, you wake up the next morning, and you have a guilty conscience. Is it worth it? 
There's nothing more painful than the filth of sin. It steals your peace. It steals your joy. You know in your heart you're wrong. You know you have lied or you have cheated or you have stolen. I had breakfast with a man today. He was excitedly telling me about all the people this week he shared the gospel of Jesus with. I finally could not help myself. I said to him face on, are you still committing fornication? His whole countenance, it was like I'd poked a pin in his balloon. And he said, yes. I said, do you think all of your righteous witnessing will make up for your fornication? Do you really believe that? No. When are you going to get right with Jesus? When are you going to walk clean with Jesus? When are you going to finally say, I've suffered enough for my sin. I'm going to step into heaven. I do not want to step into the big life. I was praying he would be here. Pray for him. He was homeless for a long time. I found him one night over on the picnic table beside Coles, and it was about 20 degrees above zero. I went and bought him a sleeping bag. I wanted to bring him to my house, and the Lord said, no. I put him on that picnic table. He needs to suffer enough that he'll leave his sin. I helped him get back on his feet, brought him to church. Some of you know him. I'm praying he'll be here soon. He could be used mightily for the kingdom of God if he would just leave his sin. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness and orgies, carousing, detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you, but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Verse 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray and above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. So after I confronted this man with his sin, I began to talk with him about all the blessings that God has given him, that he no longer is sleeping on a table, that God has called him out, that God loves him, that God wants to forgive him and heal him and restore him. God wants to make peace between he and the woman he keeps fighting with, that God wants to give them a beautiful marriage together, He wants to use them as a team for the kingdom of heaven. He said to me, you've told me about my sin. Why are you now building me up? I said, because that's what Jesus wants to do with you. Jesus doesn't come to condemn you. He comes to build you up. He comes to encourage you. He comes to open opportunities for you. He loves you. He died for you. Chapter 5, verse 6. 
Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. That's the end of the story, isn't it? I want you to know today how much Jesus loves you. How much he cares for you. He does not want you to continue hurting yourself with your sin, with your anger, with your bitterness, with your wickedness. He doesn't want you to hurt yourself. He loves you. Thank you so much for joining us today. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. Write to us at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195, or visit us online at nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. We love you. To keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. Now unto Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, with great joy. Jesus Christ alone.